Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Earlier today, our colleague Francine Lacqua sat down with the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, Christine Lagarde, in Brussels. She'd given a speech there on some of the risks that the IMF is focusing on, among them protectionism uh, and uh, uh, political uncertainty. Let's take a listen to what she had to say. Protectionism is clearly a threat and uh, one that if it was to be realized uh, would, would really uh, be a break on growth would be a break on productivity, uh, would be a break on on investment, because we are seeing that uh, both innovation and trade are conducive to productivity. Productivity is the engine for growth and better allocation of resources. So, uh, you know, as part of the risks that we see, uh, clearly protectionism is one. Uh, the political uncertainty that we see around the world, particularly in the European uh, region, uh, is also high on our agenda of risks. And uh, you know, the, the potential for capital flows uh, moving from emerging market economies to advanced economies as a result of the reinforcement of the dollar and a rise of interest rates is, is a third one. Those are the sort of three risks um, that uh, apply to a situation which you know, it's quite uh, positive at the moment. Do you believe that the Trump administration, though, could be less protectionist that we feared just at the early, you know, beginning of January? You know, as, as always, uh, I don't think that uh, any economy uh, would actually um, uh, prescribe limited growth, limited productivity, limited investment, limited innovation. So if, if policymakers, including uh, the U.S. policymakers, want better growth, more investment, more innovation and productivity, trade is part of the solution. Now, then you go into the question of what kind of trade? Is it trade with restriction? Is it trade with distortive measures? And I think everybody, I hope, would agree that we do not want distortions. We do not want restrictions. We want a, a trade that is open, that is uh, fair and inclusive in order to facilitate opportunities. Great to have with us Mark Chandler, head of FX at Brown Brothers Harriman here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. And as I was doing that data check, Mark, I was remiss in not mentioning Euro-Yen right now at 116.20. I know you've been paying particularly close attention uh, to that pair. Why? 
Yeah, sure. I think that that Euro Yen pair sort of captures the axis on which you can capture a lot of the driving forces right now between the geopolitical concerns in uh, Syria and in Korea Peninsula, as well as the French elections. And so that Euro Yen cross has been uh, moving against the Euro for 11 days uh, in a row through yesterday. And that's the longest losing streak the Euro has had against the Japanese Yen since the advent of the Euro back in the late 90s. Does it, does it reflect entirely geopolitics, or is there something else at play when you look at the, the Japanese economy, Same. Well, the Japanese economy and the Eurozone economy is growing. It looks like above trend here in Q1 as the... Uh as the, both economies seem to be uh, catching a good, uh, sort of good traction here. Uh, but I, I think that the, Euro, the dollar-yen itself, I think, is a relationship that's really driven right now by the 10-year U.S. yield. And so even though a lot of people talked about the yen strength yesterday as safe haven, I don't really see that so much. I see short covering of the yen, but I think it's really being driven by the drop in U.S. yields. You know, we were trading roughly 230, 260 on the 10-year uh, for several months, and we broke through the downside of that. And finding it difficult to get back into that old range. You know, Mark Chandler, one of the things I was looking at is I was comparing equity markets and going back about 30 days. I was checking on the uh, Japanese equity market, taking a look also at the S&P 500. It looks like we've done a round turn. Mm. It looks like we've just come and sort of lapped ourselves almost. Is there any uh, context that you can help us understand why this is happening, why we seem to have this uh, sort of, on the one hand, you know, people get bullish, they wait for earnings to come out, then everybody sells. Is it just really, you know, buy the news, sell the rumor? You know, uh, the other way, sell the news, or buy the rumor, sell the news. Yeah, I know. I think that you know, at Brown Brothers, we really help our clients do value investing. And the problem right now is there's not a lot of value with stock markets. Uh, the U.S. stock market at record highs. Many other stock markets have had big rallies. Emerging markets have been a real surprise in the first quarter, up I want to say about eight percent or so. Uh, the Japanese stock market is really making new lows for the year. I think yesterday or today, and this I think is really a reflection of the rally that we had before, but also the yen strength. You know, foreigners have been big sellers of Japanese stocks most of this year. Very end of March, they turned buyers. And I suspect that the new fiscal year begins, we'll see Japanese capital outflows resume, and we'll see foreigners again looking at Japanese stocks. As far as uh, the uh, political situation goes in, in Asia and North Korea, I'm sure that's something that you didn't go to school to f- learn how to write about or even think about and factor into your analysis. But how do you do that? Yeah, so uh, how do people like me look at a couple of things? One is we try to understand what's happening, and we try to make scenarios about what's going to happen. And I think that you know the, the Korean Peninsula is one of the left, the last of the Cold War uh, sort of uh, challenges. And I think that there's you know it's, 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 what's really challenging about it is when. East, when West Germany had that leveraged buyout of East Germany after the Berlin Wall fell, Germany decided to do it on its own finance the, the takeover. But South Korea is not rich enough to be able to do that for North Korea. So it, it's a much more of an international yeah, thing. But East Germany did not have nuclear weapons. East Germany didn't have nuclear weapons, but the idea is that uh, how, ca- if, how could the Korean Peninsula be united? Is it anybody's interest to really put this conflict to rest? And I don't think China would like the Korean Peninsula dominated by South Korea, U.S. interest. I don't think Japan would like a, a united Korean Peninsula where it would be a real rival to the Japanese economic uh, power in, the, in East Asia as well. So I'm not sure that anybody has it. It's sort of like the Middle East. Everybody complains about it. And I, I see that, of course, people try to do things about it. But at the end of the day, it might not be in the a collective interest to really resolve these conflicts, which is why they're not resolved. Help us understand how you weigh the political risk versus the fundamentals. Uh, is political risk taking precedence at this point? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I think that, you know, uh, I sort of think of it like this. That the, it's like a radio, actually, the markets. And I think that sometimes there's noise and sometimes there's a signal. And I think that people like myself, our job is try to help investors distinguish between the noise and the signal. And I think that the underlying macroeconomic fundamentals are the ultimate signal. And the geopolitics is noise, though important noise, around that signal. And so I think it's sort of a, a bit of a disruption. But I think that the geopolitical situation is not something that can be sustained. A high level of tension like this cannot be sustained. Something has to give. And I think that we go back into a more stable situation as we get past uh, this, this coming weekend. How cognizant is this administration, do you think, uh, about what the markets are thinking? We can ask about this in the context of the, the Fed as well. And you certainly heard from some Fed speakers that they are aware of or, or interested in what the markets are, are doing. But for a guy like you trying to find out what administration's policies are, uh, you know, do you think there's some sympathy for people in the markets, for people that's just generally here trying to figure out what the heck's going on? Yeah, I think that's really the challenge. I just come back from a long uh, business trip in Asia, and I think this is the key question everybody has, is sort of the Trump administration, unknown quantity. I know that the, uh, there's some experienced people there in the, in the cabinet, but there's a lot of people with little political experience, uh, with little uh, knowledge or experience in foreign policy. And I think that the communication style, all this adds to uncertainties, uh, signals that are being sent inadvertently. And so I think this is what makes the, the investment climate all the more difficult, uh, certainly a policy, untested quantities out there. So I think there's a real challenge, but we, what we try to do is still focus on the underlying signal, and that's going to be reversion back to macroeconomics, and there the key issue is Fed policy, tightening of Fed policy, uh, balance sheet, and what other central banks will do. Bank of Japan is still easing policy. Uh, ECB is still expanding its balance sheet. Uh, so I think that the divergence still underpins a, a, lar uh, a long dollar position in the long run, but we got this noise in the short run. Tell us about China and uh, the Chinese yuan. And I know that Stephen Schwartzman, the uh, head of Black, uh, Blackstone, yesterday uh, was speaking on Bloomberg uh, Television with uh, David Weston, uh, in which he spoke about China as uh, a currency manipulator. And the point that he made, I believe, was... They, he doesn't think that that's going to be a label that will get uh, put on the Chinese. Yeah, that's my view as well. I think that uh, oftentimes in campaigns, I think uh, Bush, Obama, Romney all talked about China manipulating the currency. It may have in the past, but the Treasury Department's come up with a criteria, and China just doesn't make the criteria. For example, one of the criteria is that, sh that a country has a large, by that they mean more than 3% current account surplus. China is, is close to half of that. I think last year it was about 1.8%. Another criteria is a country that has increasing currency reserves as they intervene in the foreign exchange market. And as we know, over the last 18 months or so, China's reserves have fallen by a trillion dollars. A trillion dollars is more reserves than the U.S., Canada have combined. And so, uh, again, China doesn't meet this criteria. And I think this is we have to make a distinction between uh, operational policy and declaratory policy. How, how has that shown up in the market? In mm. other words, if, if, if someone didn't tell you that the Chinese had this trillion dollars hadn't flooded out, where would you go to see it uh, and understand where it ended up going? Yeah, well, this gets a little bit tricky. I don't think you can really just look at the foreign exchange market because the currency, the RMB, is very steady against the dollar. Uh, I don't think you can look at it, the Chinese stock market. It's being driven by other things. What I would be looking at is really is the Chinese companies that borrow dollars that are paying them back. And that the IIF, the Institute for International Finance, said that about two-thirds of those capital outflows from China are really Chinese companies who borrow dollars paying them back. 
So I'd be looking at those kind of uh, below the surface things that are a bit di more difficult to uh, difficult to find, but are are there nonetheless. Those, those Chinese companies that are in debt, but and they're paying back in U.S. dollars. They they know? borrow the dollars, and when the dollar you have is an cheap, index for that or something. I mean, is there you just got to go co company by company? Company by company, and you have to look at really what what's behind the the capital flows. I think a lot of us look at the trade flows, but I really think that behind the trade flows, that was sort of our parents' generation. But I think now it's the capital market that drives the trade flows, not the other way around. David Gurr with Pim Fox uh, today, Tom Keen off this week, Mark Chandler with us from Brown Brothers Harriman, and Mark and I were listening to the interview that uh, Francine Lockwood did with Christine Lagarde just a few minutes ago. She was enumerating risks, Mark. She said it's protectionism, political uncertainty. We've talked about both those uh, in some detail. And then she said potential for capital flows moving. How does that play out in an economy that she says is, uh, quote, quite positive at the moment? Yeah, I think what she was getting at, David, was that typically you'd want to see the developed world lend money and invest in emerging markets. But what really characterized really the pre-crisis era, pre-crisis phase at least, was capital flows going from emerging markets back to the developed world. And I think that destabilized. And the other issue I think that the capital flow issue raises is what Pim and I had talked about before, and that is that many countries and companies borrowed dollars when U.S. interest rates were low and the dollar was cheap. And now that that, that cycle is reversing, uh, it looks like there's some dollar imbalances out there still. And that becomes also a destabilizing element. Francine asked her about China being labeled a currency manipulator, the prospect for that happening, and uh, she demurred, talking about the report the IMF is going to release here in a couple of months. I noticed the same thing happening now within the Trump administration. Steve Mnuchin saying we're going to get this 4X report, this twice-a-year FX report soon, and uh, you know, not, not having the hot rhetoric that we saw on the campaign trail, uh, certainly. Uh, are you ruling that out at this point in light of what we're hearing from, from the, US, uh, the U.S. government? Do you think it's unlikely that we'll see that, that labeling happen? Yeah, in some ways, I think it's unlikely. But on the other hand, look at what happened when uh, Japanese Prime Minister Abe visited the U.S. Uh, the U.S. and Japan agreed to a high level between the vice president and the Japanese finance minister to have to have trade talks. And now, after President Xi visited the United States, the U.S. and China are going to be a hundred-day crash negotiations on a cabinet level. And it turns out that if a country is found guilty of manipulation by the U.S. Treasury Department, the first thing that has to happen bilateral trade talks. So I think that for me, it's the, the reason that China doesn't get cited as a currency manipulator is one, it doesn't meet the criteria. And secondly, because there's already these trade talks in place. And I think this is really uh, partly the Trump negotiating type strategy, make these outlandish claims and then get the other side to, to, uh, to compromise, to make some concessions. And then you can pull back, that is the U.S. can pull back from some extreme operation, excuse me, some extreme declaratory policy. Mark Chandler, can I just ask you, and I know I'm putting you in a tough position because uh, talking about other people's credibility is always a, a fool's errand. But, um, you know, we are how many years into the Greek crisis? Eight years? Uh, you have um, a situation now where a fifth of the Greek population is currently unemployed, and that's being generous with the statistics. Uh, you're talking about 180% debt to GDP plus about two and a half billion euros has just gone out of Greek banks in January and February of this year. If you can't solve a problem like Greece, which I understand is about the economy the size of Philadelphia, what credibility do you have to talk about all the other efforts that are going on around the world. Yeah, no, I think that, you know, I think that, Pim, this is, I think, a issue that people haven't focused on yet. Uh, it's coming up, to, it's going to come into a head in the next couple of months. And here's what the issue is. The, the German parliament and the Dutch parliament say the only way that they'll give more money to, for the Greece uh, bailout, so-called bailout, is if the IMF contributes money. 
The U.S. is not sure that it wants to okay the IMF to contribute even more money to Greece. Isn't this a problem? I think you, the point that I hear you raising, really, isn't this a problem that Europe can solve themselves? Do they need U.S.? If uh, Tillerson says, what do U.S. taxpayers have an interest in Ukraine? Surely U.S. taxpayers don't have an interest in bailing out Greece. And so I could conceive of a situation where the IMF board rejects, that is what the U.S. veto, tells the IMF it cannot lend more money to Greece. And there causes a bit of a crisis in Europe because then what can the Germans do a few months ahead of their national elections? Couldn't you foresee a similar conversation where somebody offhandedly says, why do U.S. taxpayers care about the IMF? Yeah, I think, you know, David, this is an important point, I think, is that that is that the the American first rhetoric of Trump's does not harken back to World War II, but World War I. And remember what happens after Woodrow Wilson proposes the League of Nations, the Senate says, no, you don't. And what the U.S. was launching then, even though a lot of people call it an isolationist phase, it was really unilateralist. And I think this is the issue. The, under the Trump administration, I think the idea is that these multilateral institutions may prevent the U.S. from articulating or expressing its national interest. But I think that at the end of the day, uh, the U.S. will be hesitant to break from these, even though it might uh, perhaps, as they've hinted, not necessarily listen to the, all the WTO uh, declarations uh, where they where they try to exert their influence stronger within these multilateral institutions and enforce more vigorously some of the trade agreements. So I think that the, this is a risk that the protectionist, nationalist, scorched-earth wing of the Trump administration wins out. But right now, I'd say it looks like uh, maybe a tilt the other way uh, with that uh, Kushner-Bannon uh, rapprochement that seemed to be in place uh, as of last weekend. I'm Mark Chandler with Brown Brothers Herman. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Turning now to foreign policy. Uh, He had a four-year tour of duty in Brussels as the Supreme Allied Commander Admiral James Tabritis is now dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Admiral Tabritis, great to talk with you as always, especially on this day when the NATO Secretary General is in Washington, D.C. for a series of meetings at the White House. We'll hear from him uh, later this afternoon when he uh, and the President have a press conference at the White House. How confident are you that we're going to move beyond the conversation about funding uh, with these two leaders today. It's something that uh, the president is very keen to talk about. He has been keen to talk about. Uh, has he, has he uh, made his voice heard on that issue enough? Do you think we can move past it? I think he has. And, uh, you know, this is a business show. If uh, NATO were a stock, I would say uh, now's a pretty good time to buy some more of it. Um, it is going to be a good conversation about the challenges that Russia poses to the alliance, about the possibility for additional NATO resources devoted to the fight against Syria, and hopefully a little bit about cybersecurity and how we can work together on that. So yes, I think message received at NATO on the funding, and we are going to be able to move beyond it. Uh, it's going to be a, an awkward conversation to have about the, the, the one-sentence offhand remark, seemingly, that Secretary of State Rex Tillerson made yesterday about uh, about the Ukraine. He said, uh, you know, why should U.S. taxpayers care about uh, Ukraine? If you, if you had a few minutes with the secretary, what would you say in response to that? I would say that any time we allow a big nation like Russia to invade a relatively small nation like Ukraine and carve off a significant chunk of its territory, in this case the Crimea, 
if we as an international community and as the United States, as a leading nation, allow that to happen, we are all at risk. And therefore, I would say to the American taxpayers that we don't have to send a couple of hundred thousand troops to Ukraine, but we ought to be in the game helping arm their military and pushing back against this kind of Russian aggression. It's in our global interest to do so. Admiral Stravitas, I wonder if you could share just a bit of your personal history to demonstrate how intractable some of these conflicts can be. And I'm thinking of your grandfather and Hmm. Turkey and then your return to Turkey. I can. Uh, In 1922, my grandparents became refugees. They were uh, of Greek descent, but they were citizens of the Ottoman Empire living in western Turkey in a town then called Smyrna. Today it's known as Izmir. Uh, The Turks, uh, (laughs) to put it politely, invited them to leave. They became refugees. The city was burned. They were rescued by Greek fishermen and therefore came to Ellis Island. So my family story is born out of these kind of refugee challenges. Now, the question would be for someone like me, who has a, shall we say, complicated family history with Turkey, uh, can I rise above that? And the answer is yes. And when I was NATO commander, the first city I visited as the Supreme Allied Commander was Ankara, Turkey. And after four years as the commander, when I left, the Turkish foreign minister, uh, later the prime minister, uh, Ahmed Davatolu, presented me with a, a book of vintage postcards made of the Greek community in Smyrna in the 1920s. And he said, Admiral, you have helped us see that we need to know the past, but not be imprisoned by it. And I think that was a pretty good lesson for me. So what what packet of postcards would <laughs> you like to send or show to both uh, Vladimir uh, Putin Uh, and uh, perhaps even the leadership of Iran. Yeah, in a nice way with uh, Russia, the uh, packet of postcards I think we want to show is that of uh, U.S.-Russian cooperation in the Second World War. We do have history together that can be positive. I think we can also talk about our cooperation in things as diverse as counterterrorism, counterpiracy in Afghanistan. Uh, But the cautionary message needs to be that was then and that is not now. In terms of Iran, I think it's even more difficult. We we don't have any shared history of cooperation with Iran. In fact, we, we live today as part of the fruit of a poison tree from the hostage crisis. And so I think with Iran, it's really a tabula rasa, clean slate. We need to uh, find uh, kind of track two diplomatic ways to approach them. Both of those are going to be very hard, and we have to start by confronting both Russia and Iran when they line up behind a brutal war criminal like uh, Bashar al-Assad. How should Secretary of State Rex Tillerson approach these meetings today uh, with Sergei Lavrov, the, the foreign minister, and perhaps with uh, President Vladimir uh, Putin, uh, the, the the White House has been keen to talk about fake news. We see this four-page document in which they lay out the case uh, yeah. for Russia covering up or, or, or excusing or trying to obfuscate when it comes to the gas attack we saw in northern Syria last week. How hard is it to engage with uh, a party that is not acknowledging the facts? Well, first of all, i got to say I've been very encouraged over the last several weeks uh, by, if you will, the emergence of Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. He's, he's now doing media. He's uh, engaging in the public debate. He's attending the important meetings alongside the president. He's going to Moscow. Uh, so I think he is uh, stepping up uh, and, and doing so very well. Secondly, I think he needs to bring that kind of laconic Texan 
approach. He His comment about Assad yesterday really struck a chord with me, simply flatly saying Assad's regime is not going to survive. With someone like Tillerson, I'm always reminded of that story of the uh, Texas Rangers when the governor of Texas was asked to send Texas Rangers to quell a, a riot, and the mayor of the town said, how many can you send? And the governor said, one riot, one ranger. And I think uh, Rex Tillerson is that kind of Texan. So I think a, a tough-talking, here are the facts, laying it out, that's why the memo is a good thing, is going to be the best way to deal with Russia, because Russia responds to strength. And I think that's what uh, Secretary Tillerson needs to project. Well, as uh, someone that's so familiar with uh, with that particular area, uh, is there a, this idea that now only bilateral agreements will work or this idea that there is a regional or comprehensive kind of uh, conflict resolution that can take place that would satisfy Syria and Iran, Iraq uh, and that whole area? The latter. We're not going to solve this in a unilateral way. As as much as I support the tomahawk strikes, they are certainly not the answer. They're merely the beginning of a more serious conversation. Uh, the strategic message of the strikes was quite simple, that the United States, A, is willing to use force, and B, intends to be involved in the resolution. But I think the way to think about how to resolve it is to go back to the Balkans in the 1990s, when it took a coalition that included not only NATO and the United States, but did ultimately include Russia to solve uh, those wars in the 1990, which looked a lot like Syria does today. So I'm much more a believer in the multilateral regional solution than us doing anything unilateral. I had a conversation with Admiral uh, Sandy Winnefeld a couple of days ago, right on the heels of those strikes. We were talking about the difficulty of enforcing a red line like that and then thinking that you're not going to change policy, that there isn't going to be a cause for another set of strikes like the one that we had last week. Uh, do you agree that it's it's becomes more complicated now? It does. And um, that's kind of good news, bad news. The good news is that we've enforced a uh, long-stated U.S. position against the use of chemical weapons. And I think the strikes were legal under international law for a variety of reasons. But the bad news is you've put chips on the table now. And it's it would be a thousand times worse to have launched those strikes and then the next time it happens do nothing. That's simply unthinkable. So we're back in the game. The question is, can we modulate our approach so that we don't end up with 150,000 troops like we did in Iraq and Afghanistan? We don't want to do that. We want to be smarter about how we do it. Back to the previous question, regional, multilateral is really the way to go. Mm. Admiral Stavides, let me ask you, uh, to, to reflect on what we saw at Mar-a-Lago uh, last week. Yes, of course, events interceded. We saw the strikes on Syria, but let's focus on China here, focused on East Asia for, for a little bit. Uh, what were you watching? What, what cues were you looking at? What were you, you hoping to see as an outcome from that summit in Florida last week? I thought it was a good summit, and uh, the president must have been very happy with the fact that those strikes unfolded uh, literally while they're having dinner down there. Uh, pretty remarkable and a very good way to uh, signal uh, to the Chinese that we're willing to use force. We're in the game as it applies not only in Syria, but the implied message of similarly in North Korea. What I was looking for was a shared statement out of the two of them that they would work the North Korea problem together, because I, I think at the end, all roads to Pyongyang lead through Beijing. So that 
transpired. And then on trade, I think they had a pretty calm talk, which made me feel as though we're not going to see any precipitous action out of this administration in terms of tariffs or barriers to Chinese goods, at least immediately. So I think that's all good. And the the Uber message, I would say, is um, it's going to be more about China than it is about Russia. And if you looked at the, the rhetoric during the campaign, it was a lot of gee, we're going to conduct a grand bargain with Russia. I wouldn't go so far as to say this is a pivot to China, but it certainly underlines the fact that the administration gets it correctly, that it's really about the Pacific and about China over the long haul for us. We're speaking with Admiral James Stavridis. He is the dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University, a former Supreme Allied Commander at NATO. He's also the author of The Accidental Admiral. Well, let's talk about solutions, uh, Admiral Stavridis, in terms of hard and soft power. As a former commander of a destroyer squadron and a carrier strike group, which would you rather have, a television and media network or a carrier? <laughs> You got to have both. Okay. And uh, and as I always say, uh, hard power. There are times when you absolutely need it. We're not going to negotiate a solution with the Islamic State. We're going to find them and kill them. But um, the long game so often is about the soft power side. It's about strategic communications, creating better global opportunities, expanding economic solutions. So you need both. You need hard and soft power. And the mistake is when you think about it as an on and off switch, that that it's a binary choice. Um, it's actually a rheostat. You've got to dial it in. So at the moment, we needed hard power to respond to the chemical strikes. Over time in the Middle East, we're going to need soft power if we're going to really solve the problems there. You need both. How cohesive is this foreign policy team? I imagine that you know uh, Secretary of Defense James Mattis well. You probably know H.R. McMaster, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster uh, as well. Perhaps a, you know, a little less of a known quantity would be Nikki Haley, the U.N. Uh, ambassador. But are, are, they, are they becoming a unified voice here, and how do they complement one another? I would say over the last two weeks we've seen uh, a, a dramatic improvement in synchronicity amongst them. There's still a little bit of a disconnect with Ambassador Haley up at the United Nations and what Secretary Tillerson's saying. But broadly speaking, you're seeing this team come together. And I think uh, I would attribute it, frankly, to H.R. McMaster. The job of the National Security Advisor is to be that coalescing feature, not to create policy, but to give all those cabinet officials room and space to work together and come up with coherent policy. Lieutenant General Master, I've known for 20 years. He's brilliant. In fact, in my latest book, The Leader's Bookshelf, one of the books I talk about is H.R. McMaster's book, Dereliction of Duty. He could not be better in this role and is off to a terrific start. And I think you're seeing that reflected in the cabinet performances. What did you learn from his book? I learned that you have to speak truth to power, uh, unafraid. And uh, the book, of course, is about the Joint Chiefs of Staff during the Vietnam era who were not challenging President Johnson, and that contributed to us uh, falling deeper into the spiral of Vietnam. And uh, the unvarnished truth is what a senior military officer owes his or her leadership. And I think that's loud and clear in today's world. President Trump needs voices that are unafraid to come to him and point out where we're failing and what we need to do. 
Earlier we were talking with Mark Chandler. He's uh, in the in the foreign exchange space, and we were talking about time horizons. Uh, this mm-hmm. is an administration that maintains that it has plans but doesn't want to share them, and certainly that's something the president has said over and over again. His his uh, reasoning for that is he doesn't want to give away the secrets or give away the, the strategy. Help us understand the degree to which we should trust a leader who says that. Do we need to know more about, say, what happens next in, in Syria after uh, the strikes that we saw last week? Uh, do, we, do we need to know more of the contours, more of the, the plan going forward? I think there's a distinction to be made here between strategic plans and tactical execution. I think strategic plans need to be discussed. They need to be shared. You need to build support both in Congress and, more importantly, with the American people. You can't do that without laying out what your plan is, ends, ways, and means in Syria, in dealing with North Korea, and so forth. On the other hand, it is foolish to... uh, transmit your tactical plans. Okay, I'm going to launch tomahawk strikes, then I'm going to bring in special forces, then I'm going to bring in uh, long-range bombers. Laying out that kind of campaign plan obviously is a mistake. You need to understand the difference between those two. What's desperately needed, in my view, from the United States on Syria is a strategic vision, and we have not heard that as yet. What do you make of what uh, Senator Lindsey Graham and others have said, that there need to be more troops on the ground uh, in the region focused on Syria? Yeah, I agree with that up to a point. So let's put it in perspective. At at peak, we had uh, pushing 200,000 troops in Iraq. Uh, When I was the NATO commander and I had responsibility for the mission in Afghanistan, I had 160,000 troops there. Um, We don't need that level of troops. But I would argue we probably need uh, around 10,000 troops in Iraq and Syria to support the local forces as they accomplish the military missions. That's kind of the model we've moved to in Afghanistan, where we only have 8,000 U.S. troops and the Europeans have about 6,000. We used to have 150,000. We can use local troops. That ought to be the model. We do need somewhat of an increase, but certainly not what we did in Afghanistan and Iraq. Admiral Stavridis, what kind of public relations effort would be needed to convince the American public, do you believe, that 10,000 U.S. troops ought to be in Syria? I think that there is an enormous amount of what I'll call Middle East fatigue in the country. And uh, people kind of conflate everything. It's Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and Libya and uh, Palestinians, and it's just a huge mess. What we need to do is disaggregate these things and uh, queue up for the American public uh, Syria and Bashar al-Assad's particular form of brutality. I think the U.S. public would get it that people that are using chemical weapons like that have absolutely got to be stopped. And I think um, I would lead with that and then build the strategy out beyond it. So in other words, use that, use the images in the public, yes. uh, in the public venue in order to uh, help formulate that kind of policy. Exactly. I I think the American public, as a general proposition, will go along with the use of American force as long as they understand why it matters to them. And I think the case, just as we were talking in the earlier segment about why Ukraine, uh, the case to be made is you don't want to let big nations gobble up chunks of little nations. And here in Syria, you want to make the case that war criminals need to be stopped. And boy, we we should have learned that lesson across the course of history, going back certainly to the last century and fascism as it rode up in Europe. 
What do you think reporters should be asking the, the Secretary General today at that press conference? What's the, what's the number one question you think uh, they need to ask? Well, I, I am going to be pragmatic here and say the first question out of the box ought to be uh, funding. It ought to be, uh, Secretary General, how soon will the NATO nations hit the 2% uh, gross domestic product goal that they've set for themselves? I think the second question ought to be, will NATO participate in operations against the Islamic State as an alliance? And I think the third question, a little bit off the beaten track, but would be an important one is, what is NATO doing to protect itself from cyber attacks? attacks. When you look at Russia's uh, growing capability demonstrated in our own election, I think that's an alliance problem as well. So there's three questions. Admiral James DeVritis, thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.